0: Are you in college or know someone who is? The Thomistic Institute Study Abroad Program is now accepting applications for the spring semester of 2025. Live steps from the Colosseum with like-minded students and explore the ancient and medieval intellectual tradition of Rome at the Dominican Order's Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas. Don't miss this life-changing opportunity. Limited spots are available. For more information, Go to Institute.org slash Rome. That's Institute.org slash Rome. Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at tomisticinstitute.org. All right, so I want to welcome you guys all tonight here. Uh, thanks for coming to uh, hear a little bit about some ideas about free will, uh, particular, particularly the question about what free will is and, you know, whether we have it, both of those being important questions. But first I just want to thank you all, um, uh, particularly for uh, Mr. Novak and the Thomistic Institute, uh, your, your new chapter, I understand, at USF here, uh, and all, all your support team uh, for their work uh, to making this event happen tonight. So in general tonight, I just want to provide an overview as to how free will um, has been viewed kind of in a general way by Thomas Aquinas uh, and see how it might contribute to some understanding of this issue within a contemporary context. Uh, and so, just to be clear, I'm a philosopher, not a scientist. Um, so I'll be coming at this from a philosophical perspective. But I will sort of look at some of the uh, some of these arguments at the end of the presentation that you see against this idea of this yeah this idea that we have free will. So first, we'll begin with just this common, you know, everyday person's assumption about what free will is or what it involves. Um, Far from being a merely academic question, it turns out that free will is a valuable, an intuitive, and a meaningful notion that does a good job of making sense of our own personal experience and understanding the behavior of others. Here on this slide, there's these three ideas we commonly associate with free will. By the way, I love that little cartoon, it's like a paradox, right? (laughs) So first we have the ability to actualize distinct possibilities. In other words, our actions make things happen that wouldn't otherwise occur if we hadn't done them. Not only this, but we stand in a relationship to multiple simultaneous possibilities, one of which becomes a reality because of our free choice. Second, we have some degree of autonomy. We are, to some degree, self-directing, self-governing, as opposed to being merely exercised by external causes and factors. And this third notion that the sort of common person has about free will is is that we're responsible for our choices. We regret our previous bad choices because we know that we are responsible for them and this because we have free will. So not not only are these common ideas associated with free will, but I think they're generally correct. Human beings are genuinely responsible for their actions, have a meaningful degree of autonomy, and are able to actualize distinct possibilities. That these views about free will and human behavior are rather natural is shown uh, shown in how they are operative in a social and intersubjective context. For example, on the antisocial side, a lack of a sense of free will has ill effects. For example, Ted Bundy, the serial killer, is an infamous person who claimed that he didn't experience a sense of free will in his life. He sort of felt like he was sort of in this kind of machine. Regarding the social function that the conception that free will plays, The philosopher P.F. Strawson has pointed out that in general, we tend to depersonalize individuals when we find out that their actions were not free. For example, imagine a scenario when you call over a friend of yours, you know, let's say you haven't seen them in a while, and upon arrival, and without saying a word, he shoves you to the floor. Your immediate response would be things like, you know, why would they ever do this to me? What have I done to deserve this treatment? why why are they being so mean to me? But after this event, say, you come to find out that your friend had had a psychotic breakdown for some reason. It's at this time that your relationship with him changes regarding that event. Instead of relating that action in personal terms, you then switch to a more impersonal understanding of that behavior. For example, you say things like, their brain was malfunctioning, or, they have a chemical imbalance, or they're exhibiting compulsive behavior, etc. So in this way, there is a direct relationship between the notion of free action and the notion of interpersonal interaction. So to provide some orientation as we go through this fairly involved section coming up, I apologize for that, I want to identify for you a few ultimate conclusions about free will that I hope to establish first is that free will involves contingency without being arbitrary and is determinative without being deterministic. So we really are trying to hit a middle ground between these two extremes. This view of free will addresses a false dichotomy between actions as determinative or arbitrary. Free will has similarities and differences with both of these features. The second point is that free will is our capacity to engage in particular actions beyond and indifferent different generic cognitive states. This is sort of getting at what in the world free will is. The philosopher Peter Vandenwagen Inwagen once honestly opined in his book on free will that although he knows that he has free will, he has no idea what it is. A major goal of this talk is to, in fact, identify what free will is and maybe a little bit about how it works. So we shall test this view of free will at the end of the presentation in light of some criticisms uh, regarding the reality of free will. So the next several slides are going to examine the nature and possibility of free will. This will entail examining the nature of free will in light of basic considerations of human nature, and a deeper examination of the integrated and fundamental characteristics that go into building an account of free will. So let's start with a rather classic, albeit fairly nominal definition of free will. That's one there. Free will is the ability to do otherwise or the ability to take one thing while refusing another. So it's a, it's a simultaneous relationship, you might say, to doing something and not doing that thing. That's sort of the space in which you're in when you are uh, uh, the space of free will or free action. So note though, that this definition doesn't explicitly include what the idea that idea of free will as the choice to do what is ultimately good, and a lack of free will as doing what is ultimately bad. This is also a way and sometimes in which we talk about free will. So this is not the way we're talking about it today. So for example, you might hear someone say something like, although his wild and wicked lifestyle is what he had chosen, he is not free, he's not truly free, since he will never achieve happiness if he keeps on this path. On this definition we're using tonight, since he had the ability to do otherwise in these particular choices that weren't so good, He in fact, um, he was indeed free, even though in this other sense, he wasn't free. So at this point, since free free choice is something that human beings do, and is in fact a special feature of human beings, we need to dip our toe into a general account of human nature, an account that once again will make sense in light of the range of human behaviors human beings exhibit and experience. So what we're really after here is a deep dive into the fundamental principles that compose a human being and how these principles interact to make some sense of how free will occurs or is possible. So there's, in general, three sort of views of the human person. There's materialism, there's dualism, and then there's this view called hylomorphism, which I'll be talking about tonight. You know, materialism is the view that we are essentially and fully material things. So we are substances that that every part of us is a material thing. Dualism is the view that there are associated with us two separated substances, our souls, sometimes referred to as our minds or immaterial minds or souls, and our bodies. A position, however, that has been available since Aristotle and consistently articulated throughout the Middle Ages is this view called hylomorphism. So hylomorphism holds that although the human soul is a special principle, it's a special principle of the whole actually, soul and body together make up the substance of the person. On hylomorphism the person is made up of soul and body and the soul is the fundamental part meaning it is the principle by which the unity of the whole comes about. Although one of the criticisms of hylomorphism is that it's too hard to understand the relationship between soul and body. And in fact, this relationship, the critics hold, may be incoherent. But one easier way to think of this relationship is like that between what we'd call an idealized triangle or the idea of a triangle, and the representation of a triangle, say one that's been drawn on a chalkboard. Now the perfect triangle, the ones that the mathematicians talk about and they study, is like the soul, and the representation on the board is like the body. This idealized triangle is a special principle of the triangle and has a completeness. But so does the image of the triangle on the board. And of course, there's a relationship between the two such that the triangularity of that image of a triangle on the board uh, matches or doesn't match the ideal triangle, and as such will match or not match triangularity itself. So imperfections on the corner of the triangle will not be part of that, uh, as we'd say, a limit that that representation is approaching in this Idealized form. A particular physical body, then, is a particular presentation of the soul at a particular time. The soul maintains its identity as the unity of the body throughout these bodily changes. Another way to delve into the hylomorphic account, in order to aid us in thinking about free will, is to think about the soul as a part of the whole that identifies the whole above and beyond the disjunctive parts that make the person up. So this is two. The soul is a special part of the person such that the act of the soul is properly the act of the human being as a whole. This is possible on hylomorphism since the soul is the principle of unified action and the being of the whole. Its action is of the whole person because the soul excels matter in its operational power and the character of the body is itself ordered to the soul. This hylomorphic view of the human person becomes directly relevant to free will when we think about what this entails for a causal consideration of human action. Namely, that this hylomorphic account will be an agent causation account of free will, which is, on the right there, the imminent cause of an action is the person as a whole you see where I'm trying to direct us here? Trying to direct us to a consideration of the human being taken as a whole, and not a consideration of the human being broken down into some particular neurological pathway, which would constitute only a part of the human person. So having identified a general metaphysical point about human nature and human causation, Uh, specifically as it involves the soul and person as a whole. We now need to look at how aspects of the soul interact to produce an action. A major point along these lines is that, and this is number three, free will is necessarily dependent on intellectual operations. This is illustrated in the diagram. The functional movement from, so on the right there, the object, to the intellect, to the will, and then back again to the object. Truth is the relation between the object and the intellect, and goodness is the relation from the will back to the object. The key movement to show the dependence that the will has on the intellect is that from the intellect to the will. Although the will has the intelligible good as its object, and I'll give you an example in a second, The will is itself blind to such externally existing goodness and needs to have the intellect posit this to it, to the will, for it to be drawn to particular good things. So let's just say we're taking an example. Let's take an example of it's a hot day. You have this, you know, this uh, ice cream cone in front of you. So that's the object. So there it is, the ice cream cone. And of course, we come to know things about that ice cream cone. We recognize it. We recognize its food. It's cool, it's sweet, it's delicious, right? it might cool you down on a hot summer's day, etc. okay? Not only are there this, these facts about the ice cream that are identified okay, by the intellect, but also things that are good about the ice cream, right? So things like, well, it's, um, it's delicious, it's cool, it's sweet, you know, it tastes good, you know, it's, I'm hungry, it's nutritious, okay? All of these things are associated as goods in relationship to it, right? Um, But, uh, well, I guess I should say um, as well that the intellect will also recognize some features of the ice cream that's not so good, right? And that'll be things like, well, it's fattening and, you know, it's uh, too much sugar is bad for you and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a kind of a list of features that the intellect knows with respect to these various objects. The will is blind with respect to the ice cream until it has posited to it, and that's moving down here, that there are these features of the ice cream that are good. Once the intellect posits to the will the good-making features associated with the ice cream, that turns the will, switches the will on, and it is wanting to move back to the object, okay? So it will be a consideration of a motivation back to the object itself, right? The perfection of the thing, the thing that we're after, and that completes us in this respect. So this completes this, this process. So what this dependency tells us, though, at bottom, is that there will always be a reason for our actions. In other words, when asked why someone performed a certain action, it'll never be sufficient to respond with, I did it because I chose to, despite having no compelling reason to do it, okay? The will has the goodness posited to it, and so the goodness, as coming from the intellect, and as will be a ground for the action, and there will always provide a reason for doing something, okay? So, that's this dependency that occurs. Okay, so that was a general schematic of human motivation and the fact that the will is dependent on, in an important sense, the intellect. I love this graphic. It's, I don't know where I found it. It's just very cool. <laughs> I think it's like probably for like a telepathy or something like that, but it nicely hits uh, this point. So however, there are, there are levels to the intellectual operations themselves. So if we dive into the intellect, we see that there's a kind of stratification and process there as well. These levels of intellect will be relevant in our understanding of both, free, uh, of both the will and free will. Of particular importance is the initial stage that colors all stages. I'm sorry, uh, I need to read these to you. So there's abstraction. This is uh, identifying the general features of the thing. So this is a, recognize, a recognition that this is ice cream. And so it's a first sense or awareness of the object. We then move from this uh, basic understanding of things to forming propositions, or otherwise known as assertions, in which we compare features. And then we, we turn and, and form ju- um, propositions or uh, assertions uh, with respect to that, so if I say, for example, ice cream, and I, I, I think ice cream is delicious, right? So I, I believe this, right? I form this 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 proposition that I may believe, or ice cream is fattening. Okay, ice cream is good with respect to it being, you know, something that cools you down. And then finally, judgment, and this is the final step in which new assertions are based on a comparison of former assertions. So this is where you're really coming down to um, a sizing up or a deliberation of the situation to then make a choice, right? What What am I going to do with respect to the ice cream? All right, so of particular importance is the initial stage that colors all stages of intellection prior to choice, and this is the stage of abstraction, the first step. In fact, free will will be seen as a complementary, but inverse function to the abstract nature that characterizes the intellectual state. Specifically, a key feature of abstraction is that it is a feature that is indifferent to what falls underneath it. So the the real characteristic of abstraction is that it has a kind of indifferent relationship To whatever falls underneath it so this idea of indifference actually becomes a really uh, important idea because if you look at the diagram there you have food food is this generic idea and you have the PB&J the peanut butter and jelly sandwich falling under food and the salad falling under food we could put ice cream on there as well but there is an indifference here, if you notice, between food and any, any one of those items that fall, fall underneath it, okay? Yes, PB&J is food, but PB&J doesn't capture all of what food is, all right? Food is also salad. Salad is not PB&J, okay? So there's an indifference that exists between these. So food is said truly of the PB&J, but it's said of others as well. Salad and PB&J are not the same thing as I said, thus food is indifferently PB&J and salad. In fact, this is true not only of generic concepts but of particular instances of what as well. So food is and is not this bowl of salad, you know, that might be sitting in front of you. In this intriguing situation, there are two interesting relations at play. The first is what I call the bottom-up relation from one of the branches up to its genus. So if we follow from the bottom up to the top. With the bottom-up relation, there is an unambiguous pathway from one of the branches up to its genus, since included in the very idea of that branch is the member above it. For example, if it is contained in the, it is contained in the very notion of being salad, that it is food, right? it's it's there. You can't avoid it with the very notion of salad. However, there's also what I call the side-to-side relation. This is the relation of the generic to its opposing differences. Food is equally, equally indifferently, and ambiguously related to PB&J and salad. In this relation, due to the abstract nature of the generic concept, there is no unambiguous pathway to either difference from the genus. So in and of itself, from food, there is no unambiguous pathway to one of the two that fall underneath it. So free choice makes a special appearance at the level of intellectual judgment and is a place where we see the complementarity between intellectual and volitional aspects of human action. So one deliberate, so this is, what happens with judgment. One deliberates on a variety of assertions, the termination of which is a chosen action. So let's say someone chooses to eat a second piece of chocolate cake. She eats it after thinking about it because eating sweet things are pleasant, she says, and chocolate cake is sweet. She decides not to go for the healthy choice, which is not so obviously pleasant, but would otherwise have had a she would have had a perfectly good reason for abstaining from the second piece of chocolate cake due to it being more healthy to do so. So she has a reason for both of these. When doing so, a person is not choosing beyond reasons but choosing among reasons. So necessarily, the executed choice involves both the bottom-up relation to the branches of its genus and now a direct determinate path from generic to only one of the side-to-side relations, only to one of the side of the branches. In this way, due to the bottom-up relation, a judgment necessarily will have a reason, so it won't be arbitrary, and yet it is free because the indifference of the side-to-side relation was removed by choosing one side and not the other. Of course, this is usually rather complicated. The reason the chocolate eater chooses the food she did was because it tastes yummy instead of being healthy. However, at the end of the day, the reason for acting is because food is good and eating pleasant things are good, but so are doing things that are healthy. The top-bottom relation and the side-to-side relation are at play in the anatomy of that choice. The final point to be made about the dependence of the will on the intellect What are we ultimately after, and how is this related to our intellect? So since goodness is what we always seek, and can only be identified through the intellect, everything we do is for a reason. In other words, reason applied to action is just the way of finding the pathway to what is fundamentally good. As a result, to do something just because it is evil, is just as impossible as doing something just because it is irrational. Now, of course, we need to make a distinction here between the appearance of good and the reality or real good. Right? The idea here is that whenever we choose something, we always do it at least because it appears to us to be good, right? As given from the intellect, and it's that particular aspect that it, that we opt for that becomes a reason for our action and the recognition that what we are pursuing there, in that case, is that which is good. But unfortunately, lots of times when we choose the appearance of the good, it isn't actually good. Right? In fact, it can be, in reality, evil. So given the strong view right, that I've presented here on the, on the last side, slide, we are left with the question, on the left side there. Since the will is dependent on the intellect to identify what is good, and action involves the rational process of deliberation, do we even need the idea of free will? After all, couldn't we just think of there being an inner process in which we make comparisons and forced to pick the one that, is, that has the most compelling reason? This doesn't follow. Remember about the nature of the relation between the bottom-up and the side-to-side relation of differences. Reason in in this dynamic is not going to be sufficient for the choice because in addition to the bottom-up relation, there is the ambiguous side-to-side relation of the differences to its generic parent. We begin with the intellect, and the intellect is in the realm of abstraction, which is fundamentally indifferent to opposing branches falling under it. Therefore, we have evidence, this is for, evidence for free will as a distinct power from our intellect. Our intrinsic ability to perform one particular action versus another when those actions are indifferent at the generic level. So that's what free will is essentially going to amount to. So to illustrate this, there's this thought experiment that goes back to the 14th century, uh, formulated originally by a um, medieval philosopher by the name of John Burden. John Burden, sort of a a fan, uh, philosophers of medieval, uh, students of medieval philosophy tend to love John Burden because he was this kind of pure philosopher. He he stayed in the uh, teaching in the arts, which is basically philosophy. And didn't proceed on into theology. And so he's like, he loved philosophy. And he was sort of called called to continue this in his life. But this is referred to as Burden's donkey. So so you can imagine this donkey walking into a barn. So let's say it's a barn that's as wide as this place. And it's been working all day, so it's, it's extremely hungry. So it comes in right, right in the middle. Let's say the barn door is right in the middle. And it sees two piles of hay in both corners of the room, okay? Now, all, the, we have to kind of do an all things are equal scenario, right, so let's say this donkey is not, doesn't have a tendency to move to the right or the left, right, it's, he's not right hoofed or something, right, where he tends to go to the right, okay? He sees both piles of hay at the same time. He smells both, right, Every, those piles of hay have an equal effect on him at all times in his perception Okay. The question is, what happens next? What does the donkey do? Well, it seems that, you know, you would say, oh, well, the donkey's just going to go over to one of the two piles. But notice that that can not happen. The donkey wants food, but is equally drawn to both piles of hay. Okay. Why go to one pile of hay as opposed to another pile of hay? There's no deciding factor. So it seems that the donkey would just starve to death. Very ironic, right? So what conclusion do we draw from this? Namely, that the bottom-up relation, so the donkey, let's say, knows that it's food. This pile of hay is food. So is this pile of hay. He wants food but he has this inability to go from one pile of hay to choose or opt for this pile of hay versus that pile of hay because there's an indifference between the uh, generic notion of food and the individual pile of hay. But of course, you or I would not meet the same fate as Bird and Donkey, even though we understand the phenomenon of indifference between equal choices. Therefore, we must posit a distinct power of free will, a kind of complementary power to that of the intellectual abstraction. Although it's dependent upon the intellect, the intellect is not sufficient for choice. If we think about the diagram of the triangle that I showed earlier, the movement from one object, from the object to the intellect, to the will, and back to the object again, we see that the complete process requires entering into an abstract state by the intellectual power, but then to exit back to the concrete by an act of the free will in which a particular action is able to be executed. So up here, just as particular objects are rendered generic and consequently indifferent to particular instances of those universalized properties, Free will allows us to move from this state of mind of indifference to a particular action that instantiates it. So we've been thinking about the requirement of free will over and above that of intellection to fully account for human action. At this point, we need to reflect some more about the interplay between intellect and will. But first, I need to say something brief about the function of free will in a dynamic and more concrete way and introduce a few more key terms. Fortunately, with Aquinas, there's lots of terms to learn. So I I appreciate your, uh, your patience on this. All right. So free will is the choice of contingent means for achieving an end which is ordered to the necessary goal of objective happiness. So that's a, that, a, that concrete move. So we have the notion of contingent versus necessary. Contingent is an avoidable aspect of a thing or event. Means versus end, probably familiar to you. The former, the means being done for the sake of the latter. So we say, you know, the key was a means to opening the door. Okay. And then happiness, which is active and complete realization and the ultimate explanation for why we are motivated to choose anything, right? It's the good that we are pursuing for ourselves. So here's a little bit more context to get us to a better understanding of the causal process involved in a free action. Imminent realism which is the view which ultimately accounts for what something is, its powers, and why a thing is moved towards another. On this view, forms, or the intelligible structure of things, are located as principles of intelligibility, structure, and stability, and have residency directly in the world that we experience. So it's this idea that the um, intelligibility of things is imminent in the world around us. We live in a An intelligible world. So how should we understand the interaction between the intellect and will, specifically regarding the various moving components involved that constitute the anatomy of a human action itself? So first, the intellect moves the agent as a formal cause, which is that by which something is of a certain kind. This might be a strange notion of causation to the modern ear, however it has a fairly straightforward uh, idea behind it. This is that the intellect determines what action has been performed and for what generic reason. When looked at from this perspective, one gets a kind of static and generic feel for the role of the intellect. For example, it's involved in identifying an action like as For example, uh, an act of theft, right? So so the idea is uh, with respect to what the intellect's job is with um, as a cause, it defines the action. So what has just happened? What did this guy do? He just stole something, right? Defined on what what theft is and what, what the action was that was performed. Now the will moves the agent as final cause which initiates an action for the sake of accomplishing something. That is, the will initiates the act in its movement towards the good and establishes the particular reason for acting. With this motion, we get a dynamic and concrete feel for the role of the will in action. For example, committing an act of theft for the sake of getting some quick cash. In the spirit of this dynamic role of the will, as final cause, the will is the principle that pulls the agent past the generic limit of the intellect to a particular action. And yet, determination remains ubiquitous in action as a universal covering principle, because as the formal cause, the intellect is the principle that allows the act to be fully determinative and delimited. Now, part of the reason why we're talking about this here is because, uh, as we'll see a little bit later in the criticisms, uh, some people will say, well, you can't win with free will. It's either determinate, determinative, in which it's deterministic and there can be no free will, right? You are sort of just uh, the next um, domino to fall in this causal chain. Or on the other hand, if there is no sort of determinative prior condition that gives rise to the action, then it's just arbitrary and there can be no uh, free will there, just in a purely arbitrary choice. It's like flipping a coin or something. So what we're doing here is trying to show that on one hand it's not determinate; it's, it's determinative but not deterministic, but on the other hand it's, it's um, there's a freedom there without it being just purely arbitrary. But we want to make sure that we don't misrepresent the intellect and the will as too independent of each other. It is too easy to characterize this view something like, "Okay, so let me get this straight. The will is the chooser, and the intellect is the thinker in this action. Uh, That's not going to be correct going back to that point about we're looking at the action of the whole person as being the, um, the, the agent. So the will's per se act is the intelligible good, and this or that particular good is its per ax- or sorry, its per accident's act. And by per se here, we just mean essential act, or uh, and per accident just means like a non, uh, sorry, non essential or incidental act. All right. So what this amounts to is that the will is always fundamentally about precisely the ultimate intelligible good. It is a rational will. It's ordered to what reason identifies as good. The will is interested in finding that pathway up to that which terminates in the deep fundamental good in which the happiness of the individual resides. We don't want to say the will is about, for example, um, because it's ordered to things outside of the mind, that it's just about Um, particulars, okay, like things like instincts or particular goods, we want to say that it's ordered to a rational good, right, that which is a deep uh, structural notion of the good. All right, since goodness and truth ultimately coincide, the will is considered to be fundamentally ordered and amenable to reason, which is essential and necessary. Remember the bottom-up relation. We are interested in committing an action that leads up to what is actually good and is related to our happiness. As the pair accidents is dependent on the per se, free will is dependent on the intellect. Thus, all free acts are delimited. However, this doesn't leave free will out in the cold, but uh, but rather it plays a special role in any particular action." So we see in the second point there, free will regards what is contingent because instances that fall under concepts are per accidents objects of the intellect. One does the contingent thing, although it is both done for the sake of being happy, which is necessary, with full understanding that it itself is not necessary for happiness. This is similar to the fact that a particular dog is accidens in relation to the species of dog, since if that particular dog didn't exist, it wouldn't detract from the species of dog itself. So the dog is a dog, but dogness would still be dogness without the existence of that dog. When we look at both paragraphs on, on this slide, we see that free will is kind of deterministic, as I said, but also free without being arbitrary. It is a kind of hybrid of both. All right. From our last point about the interplay between free will and intellect, let's circle back to the idea that a human being is made up of soul and body in a way that allows us to bring the abstract features of the soul down to earth a little so we can look at the interplay between the will, the intellect, and the body. So number six how the soul interacts with the body in an act of free choice. The brain should be thought of as a material cause of the soul. A material cause is just the subject in which something exists. And so we can think of the soul and the brain as these poles, see these two principles that make up the individual. And then the magnetic field between those two poles can be a consideration of the con- of our consciousness. Right, so this allows both the, the physical and the spiritual to be poles, but played out in this conscious, uh, in the conscious state that can be represented as, a, as a, uh, a field. All right So let's just recap before we move on to objections to this. So the ability to do otherwise has the whole person as its active principle, by which what is generically considered as good is superseded by a movement towards some particular good, supported by a determinative reason, for the sake of happiness, and occurring within the context of a functioning brain. How many angels can dance on the head of a pin? That's a famous question that the medievals uh, like to engage in. There's a lot of moving parts here, and I appreciate your, your patience on this. All right, so let's try to see if we can kind of use this conception to uh, basically head off some of these objections. So we begin, begin with what I call micro determinism, which is a determinism thought so, right, determinism. determinism is true, then there is no free will type of arguing, right? A determinism thought to come about as a result of the physical laws and interactions of bits of stuff under those laws. This determinism is commonly understood to be inconsistent with meaningful free will. This view is called incompatibilism. So there are some ideas working at this level that seem to yield determinism. First, the law of conservation of energy, which is no energy is lost when work is done, if it is, um, it is only lost in that particular form. The criticism goes that actions that could have been otherwise have the soul and not the body as its source. However, in actualizing a particular course of action by, by the soul, the soul would necessarily have to be outside of the energy system, And this, of course, is not possible It'd be adding energy to the system. The fact is, right down to the micro level, there is a finite finite system of particularly directed energies which cannot be messed around with to any degree. So you have the laws of physics going right down to the micro level. At any given time in which this, uh, you know, bit of energy is moving, there are initial conditions prior to it that makes it to be where it's at, right? And it goes on all the way back. Second, causal closure under the physical. This view holds that any physical effect must have only physical causes. And then third, the highly predictive nature of physics. When you treat the world around us in a physically deterministic way, as science does, we unlock considerable knowledge about the world and can make super accurate predictions about future events. You know, you know using um, Newton's uh, four you know, laws of, na- of movement of bodies, you can predict where a satellite's gonna be in space in 100 years from now, right? To, to very, very specific um, location. So this is understood by scientists to include uh, Darwinism, relativity, the periodic table, nuclear science, like I said, Newtonian physics, right? All of these are highly predictive. And that would seem to undermine free will. Alright, so let's try out some responses to micro-determ- the microdeterminism challenge. So the first is what, what, what I uh, frame as wholes versus parts metaphysics or ontology. And this is that the causal behavior of parts Are determined by the wholes they compose and so cannot be incompatible with the agency of the whole. It's sort of flipping this this causal story. So there's a lot here. The general idea though is that we need not only look at the action of the whole in light of the action of the parts but also the action of the parts in light of the action of the whole. It is possible that they are compatible. If they are not compatible then um, there is no reason, we might say, to think that they are not compatible, precisely since the parts are defined as they're related to the whole. Another possible way to, to push off uh, microdeterminism, is not, this is not the first time this not, has been said, is just to, and actually works in relationship to the whole's parts ontology, is that this idea of indeterminism at the microphysical level. Heisenberg, for example, has observed that certain processes in the brain occur at random and cannot, therefore, be determined by environmental stimuli. So although quantum indeterminism is generally unheeded in the macro world of our five senses, the brain's deep intricacies and delicacies seem to be much more open to the dynamic interactions at that level. So in this quantum state where you don't have this real, you have an indeterminism as a principle, there seems to be an openness to the very delicate structure of the brain to be able to harness that indeterminism and not therefore uh, have to require, you might say, uh, a um, fully deterministic system in order to operate. So in other words, you can kind of harness that indeterminism in this way that makes it compatible with a whole Holes ontology. All right, so Sam Harris is an atheistic philosopher who has a degree in neuroscience. And he has this book here in which he argues against the possibility of free will. Um, this form I call macro determinism, and it eliminates meaningful free will by movement at the macrophysical level, for example, at the neurophysiological uh, level. And he says, for example, quote, some moments before you're aware of what you will do next, your brain has already determined what you will do. You then become conscious of this decision and believe that you are in, a, in the process of making it. So this a lot of this idea goes back to uh, studies that have uh, come out from the, since the 1960s started by this psychologist by the name of Libet. And he did these experiments in which um, it seemed that, so um, before a free choice was made, there was indications that the brain had already made up its mind as to when it would act. So you have, let's say you have someone who needs to push a button uh, so push the button. You know you can do it whenever you want. Just push the button, and then the experiment is over. And they found that in the uh, there was this uh, action potential in the brain several seconds before the pushing of the button. So the idea is that the unconscious brain or the brain mechanism is really what chose when to push the button, and our consciousness sort of just thought it was making a decision but it's actually which is following along in this sort of deterministic way. All right, so what can we say in response uh, to this objection? So in support of one that each of us could have behaved differently than we did in the past as as the objection, Uh, there's really two things we can say. Um, First, I think that the criticism is too optimistic about lining up brain events and mind events. So I think it can be summarized in this way. The individuation of brain activity and conscious thought is not clear enough to say that one pre-existed the other. Now on one hand, brain activity is just way too vague to identify with particular conscious choices. To say that the motor cortex, for example, is active prior to this decision is too indeterminate a power to determine the execution of a decision decisions are very complex for example stealing involves intention abstraction anticipation memory etc and so i just i'm very skeptical about this you know there is a brain state and so that that thing that we refer to as making a choice uh, was signaled by the electrical, uh, the activity potential in the, in the brain prior to the action. The more complex the decision, the more vague the individuation of the brain states that would be involved in that decision would be. For example, more diverse parts of the brain will and should be active and interacting with each other, making it rather hard to compare the temporal ordering of brain and mind events. The individuation of human action between brain activity and mental activity is further complicated in a kind of cyclical relation that seems to exist between these two realms known as habits. This is illustrated with the second point, which is habitual action is not contrary to free action. So think of it this way. Just because someone lights up a cigarette habitually doesn't mean it's not a free choice. We let habits in fact take over for less important things in our lives so we can focus on more important things. A good example is concert musicians. They have relegated much of their action to the level of habituation so as to focus on higher goals of dynamics and interpretation of the music. Something like this is likely going on with some free choice to push a button or not at a certain time. Right. This seems to me to be a very good candidate for relegating it to this autonomous operation in the brain. Right. So, you know, you got better things to think about than when you're going to push a button. So you push it into the back of the, your brain. The brain kind of takes care of the spontaneous action. All right. Um, a, sec- a second denial of Harris is this this idea that we are the conscious source of most of our thoughts and actions in the present. He suggests that if we are honest about our own experiences of ourselves, we'll admit our thought life is rather random and not within our control. So he says, I cannot decide what I will next think or intend until a thought or intention arises. What will my next mental state be? I do not know. It just happens. Where is the freedom in that? So, the particular intentions, perspectives, and attitudes in these thoughts do not seem to come from us, he says. Almost like we're watching a movie directed, scripted, and produced by our brains. So, we're just, our consciousness and ideas, our consciousness is like, you know, we're these spectators and the brain's presenting the movie. And that's. we're kind of these passive individuals. So in response to this, I don't think that this is particularly bad news or particularly problematic for this view that we're presenting today. It makes sense to me to admit that we aren't the conscious source of many of our thoughts and actions in the present, and that's why I changed it to dropping the word conscious on the left side of the slide. So as So I I dropped that conscious source part. So as soul-body unities, although sometimes mysterious, our thoughts belong to us involving reverberations of past actions, right? Our own actions. Indeed, we are not perfectly transparent to ourselves. We are not moments in time, but complexes of past experiences and decisions. And yet many of the thoughts that crowd our minds are consequences of previously conscious actions that we made in a part, uh, made in part at an earlier time. But at the end of the day, freedom is realized as the soul acting for the whole person within the scope of self-determination. So it doesn't matter if you have the ability to call a particular idea or idea, idea or belief to mind at a particular time. It's what you do with it once it's present. All right, so here, um, I have, before, I, before I stop, I, there's just, um, actually, maybe I'll, maybe I'll stop there so we can take questions. Uh, I have uh, two other criticisms, but um, it's sort of gone on a little longer than I thought. So I'll end there, and then we can have, have a chat about this. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at wwwtomisticinstituteorg slash donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.